one of the great debates of the day is when is it okay to start preparing for Christmas? I don't want to, don't tell me when your opinion is, right? Uh, but it seems like re- retailers start celebrating earlier and earlier every year. Our family is of the right after Halloween camp, right? I'm not going to look at Connor because he almost shunned me from his house because of that. Um, but I will say this, we have, we have the science to back it up. So there was a study done by the Journal of Environmental Psychology that proved that those who set up Christmas decorations earlier are actually happier. Okay, so there you go. Those of you who you know, are after Thanksgiving people, you're not only prolonging your decorations, you're prolonging your joy and happiness, right? Um, what, wherever we land on that, I think one of the things we've seen over the last few weeks in this series is that God has been preparing for Christmas long before we have, right? God has planned this out to bring the arrival of Christ into the world. We've we've spanned over the last four weeks, we've spanned over 2,000 years of history, and now we've come to this moment, this arrival that all of that has been pointing to of Jesus, whom God chose to bring forth through a teenage Jewish girl named Mary. So as we look at our text this morning, uh, verse 26 and 27, we're actually going to go all the way to uh, verse 55. We just read through 38. But verse 26 and 27 introduce the setting and the characters. It introduced Mary to us. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. That's our background. The sixth month here refers to Mary's relative Elizabeth's pregnancy. So if you read the passage before in Luke chapter 1, you would read about Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, which we'll come back to her in a moment. And this angel appears, and his name is Gabriel. Now, if you're like me, you're not really up on your, your angelology, and that's okay. But Gabriel uh, was a key messenger of God in the Bible, and the Jews understood him as a key bringer of prophecy. We see this in the book of Daniel, and now he's here to bring an extremely important message to Mary. Luke also tells us that Mary was a virgin who was betrothed to Joseph. It's an important part of the story. Betrothal was very similar to engagement, but a, a little different it was a little more official legally. Essentially, Joseph and Mary were legally together, but they had not yet consummated their marriage, and they did not live together. That wouldn't happen until the end of a betrothal period, usually about a year long, where they would be officially married. And while this may sound shocking to us, Jewish betrothal uh, betrothal custom leads us to believe that Mary was somewhere between 13 and 16 years old at this time. Joseph is of the house of David, Luke tells us. And as you know from this Advent series, this is extremely important. Luke is saying, listen, what's about to happen is a part of God's covenant promise all throughout the Old Testament to bring this Savior into the world through the line of King David. We've walked through the lineage of Christ, and we've seen Tamar, we've seen Rahab, and we've seen Ruth. All of those are in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Now we've come to the end of that genealogy where Matthew 1.16 says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. In other words, the preparations are over, the waiting is done, the time has come. And other than this, we, we actually know very little about Mary's background. We know that her relatives Elizabeth and Zechariah were righteous people. We see that in the previous narrative in Luke 1.6. Mary herself, as we'll see today, she shows herself to be one who loves God. She's well-versed in the Old Testament. But her resume was very similar to that of other teenage Jewish girls from really relatively unknown Israelite towns. But what Mary shows us is that God wasn't looking for an impressive resume. In fact, God is never looking for an impressive resume. What is God looking for? He's looking for a faithful servant through which he would bless the world. And that's what we find in Mary. And so as we look at Mary this morning, here's what we're going to see. Very simply, if we were to sum it up, we see that faith in God leads to joy in God. That's what Mary shows us. And we we see this in a three-part progression through this passage. First, we'll see Mary's faith in verses 26 through 38, which we just read. Then we'll see Mary's miracle in verses 39 through 45. And then lastly, as Mary responds in song, we'll see Mary's joy. Mary's faith, Mary's miracle, and Mary's joy. So let's look at Mary's faith. In verses 28 and 29, We start to read of this message from from Gabriel, this angel. Greetings, O favored one. Verse 28. The Lord is with you. And here's her response. But she was greatly troubled at this greeting and tried to discern what this greeting might be. So in Mary's response to this, we see this first mark of her faith. Mary's faith is a reasonable faith. It's a thinking faith. Now, it's not every day. Today, or uh, back then, it's not every day that an angel of the Lord shows up and brings you a message. She may have wondered, um, did, I, did I do something wrong? She knew Old Testament stories about God sending angels to wipe people out. <laughs> but he seems like a happy angel. His greetings, that doesn't seem mad. Gabriel calls her favored one. She's thinking, well, what, what does that mean? The, the trans, some translations say full of grace, and the idea here is not that Mary has grace within herself, but that God has sovereignly bestowed grace upon Mary and is with her. And Luke's telling us she's pondering what this means. In fact, the original language for the word discern there, it's accounting language. Mary is trying to add up the pieces and think deeply and reasonably about what's happening. Now, there's some today who have this notion that Bible characters like Mary were sort of, you know, backwoods, you know, uneducated, foolish rednecks who would just sort of believe anything they see. In fact, a lot of people have that idea about Christianity itself. But Luke, who is meticulous in his research and writing of the gospel, intentionally goes out of his way to include this language. And what he's really saying is that Mary intellectually wrestled with the appearance and message of the angel. It's easy to sort of gloss over that part, but what is God showing us here? Brothers and sisters, God gave us minds to be used, right? He, He gave us reason. He created us as thinking beings. And so reasonable thinking about God is not contrary to true faith in God. Luke's showing us that there is a 
a sense of doubt and struggle in Mary as she hears this message. That should be encouraging to us. Her faith is a reasonable faith, but it's also a faith that is a process. So Mary, she hasn't even heard the crux of the message yet. The angel has just said hi. And she's just pondering the greeting. What's going on? And as she does, Gabriel announces the forthcoming birth of Jesus. This is the meat of the message. And the angel said to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In summary, the angel Gabriel is saying, Mary, you're going to give birth to the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The, the one God said would come through the line of David. Jesus, whose name means Yahweh, God saves. That's what you're chosen for. And at this point, those of us who are uh, culturally inclined to reject the supernatural, we would just check out, right? We're like, okay, I'm, I'm done. Am I hallucinating? Did I eat Taco Bell before bed again, right? What is going on here? But Mary, who is a reasonable thinker, she doesn't check out. She hasn't written off Gabriel. She's still engaged in the conversation, but she has a, she has a major question, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a biological question. She didn't skip that part of health class. She knows how babies are made. She said, how is a baby going to come for me? That means she knows this is going to be, uh, the angel is saying this is going to be a supernatural virgin birth. But there's something else under this biological question as well. Mary would have been trained by her Jewish culture to, culture to believe that God could never become a man. And here is an angel telling her that God is going to use her to bring about the God-man, the Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So she is wrestling with this. She is in process, and Gabriel responds in verse 35, really in two parts. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is not going to be a natural conception, but a supernatural one brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in a moment. But then Gabriel gives her an example of the power of God. He says, listen, your, your relative Elizabeth is currently pregnant with John, and she was barren. She's old. That shouldn't have happened. Verse 36, and behold, Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then the angel sums it up, verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. And so Mary is taking this all in. Her faith is in process. She is rightfully wrestling with this weighty truth. And friends, if that's you this morning, if you wrestle with major faith questions, I hope that you're encouraged to see that Mary, the mother of Jesus, wrestled and was in process as, as well. She didn't just blindly accept this. 11th century uh, theologian and pastor named Anselm of Canterbury, which is a great name, he describes this well when he says, faith is always seeking understanding. 
Always seeking understanding. So Mary was humbly asking these questions. And God doesn't shun her. God doesn't say, no, I'm going to go find someone else. He guides her along the way. And he does the same for us in our weak and feeble faith. And I'm, I'm reminded of a story in Mark chapter 9 where there's a man whose son is sick, is possessed with a demon, and he brings him to Jesus. But he's struggling with whether or not Jesus can actually heal. And he makes a declaration and a prayer. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's really what Mary is doing here. And we've heard Pastor Clint say this before. This is not unbelief seeking validation, which is prideful. This is faith seeking understanding. And friends, God honors that kind of prayer. That God, God honors that kind of wrestling and struggling and seeking to understand. So then we see As this process unfolds, we see in verse 38 that Mary's faith leads her to full submission in God. And Mary said, behold, something happened. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So what has Mary done? She's reasoned with her mind. She's believed with her heart, and now she submits with her life. Why? Because that's the progression, always the progression of true faith. She's saying, I submit myself to you. And the word for servant here is doulos. It means slave. She's saying, I'm yours, O God. Whatever you have for me, I'm willing and ready. And we need to consider, we need to consider this because Mary certainly considered what this meant. Life would not go on as is for her. This would be a weighty and risky task, so much so that she doesn't even fully understand yet. But what she does know is that her reputation and livelihood are on the line. As we've seen, she was betrothed in marriage to Joseph. What if Joseph thinks she's been unfaithful? Even if Joseph decides to stay with Mary and continue in marriage, Jesus would always be seen by those who knew the family as an illegitimate child. And that's exactly what happens to those in Nazareth. If Joseph leaves, how would she provide for herself? Her livelihood and reputation were at stake. If he decided to divorce her, which he almost did, aside from God intervening, She could potentially be tried as an adulteress and put to death. Not only her reputation, not only her livelihood, but her very life were at stake. It's a reminder to us, friends, we need to consider the cost of what it means to follow God, to submit to His will. Are we willing to lay those things on the line? Are we willing to to lay down our livelihood Are we fearful of losing it? Are we we fearful of losing our reputation because we follow Jesus? Or even as, as many brothers and sisters who are in persecuted nations around the world, even our lives and our freedom? That's really the question here for Mary is, is God worth it? If you've seen the classic, how many of you have seen the classic uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas? Okay, good. Uh, You'll remember Linus. You guys know Linus, the blue blanket. He's carrying around this security blanket. And throughout the story, everybody is trying to to separate Linus from this blanket. And there's this climactic scene in the movie where Charlie Brown, who's like the Charlie Browniest of all Charlie Browns, right? 
He's, he's just in despair. They're, they're at the school in the empty auditorium. And he says, is there anyone who can tell me what Christmas is all about? And Linus, you know, dim the lights, please. He goes center stage. The light goes on him. And what does he do? He recites, not this passage, but the next chapter. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. The announcement of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And then when he finishes the story, what does he famously say? Does anyone know it? That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's a great moment, right? Like He's unashamed of the gospel. Man, they show it on TV every year. Praise God. But one thing you might not notice is if you watch Linus reciting this, he actually drops the blanket. And the moment he drops the blanket is when the angel says to the shepherds, fear not. See, Charles Schultz, who was a, a Christian, knew exactly what he was doing. I love it. He's subtly saying, listen, when you have the presence of God, when you are inside the will of God, when you are fully submitted to God in faith, you don't need to fear anything. You don't need the security of this life. Linus didn't need a blanket. And Mary says, I don't need my reputation. I don't need my livelihood. And if God sees fit, I don't even need my life. I need God. So Mary submits fully to him. And she models that for us. What false securities are we holding on to this morning that are keeping us from fully submitting to God in faith? Yes, God honors the process. He's patient with us. He answers our question, but ultimately, he calls us to full submission to him because he's worthy. So that is what we see in Mary's faith. Then we move on to Mary's miracle. We see this in verse 34. The angel uh, told her that she would conceive um, uh, supernaturally, but we also see this in Mary's interaction with Elizabeth. Now, Mary stands out among the women we've been studying, right? Because uh, Mary is a part of a miracle, and she's not only a part of a miracle, but she is a part of a miracle that has not, did not happen before and has not happened since. The virgin conception, or as some historically would call it, the virgin birth. And this can be one of those hang-ups for people who are considering Christianity. It's that sort of question of like, okay, I get the whole Jesus stuff. He loved people. He served people. But really a virgin birth? Like, do you actually believe that stuff? To which we would respond, yes, absolutely. Not only do we believe it, but without it, we have no grounds for saving faith. We have no foundation for Christianity. And as we consider this miracle for a moment, just, just be reminded that uh, religious people and Christians are not the only ones who express faith in the miraculous. Every worldview takes faith leaps to attempt to answer questions, right? All of us do this. Even if you believe nothing exists outside of matter and its movements, there's no God, uh, there's no spiritual realm, there's no afterlife, there are still beliefs that require faith and confidence, okay? Glenn Shrivener is very helpful on this. He, here, here's what he says in his book, 231 Gospel. He says, Some have spoken of the universe spontaneously creating itself. As miracles go, this would be unparalleled. Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, but this would mean the virgin birth of the cosmos. And essentially what he's saying is, wherever you land, choose your miracle, right? And we choose to believe in the virgin birth. Now, a caveat, as Clint mentioned before, we're going to walk through in the new year the Apostles' Creed. 
And there's going to be a whole sermon that deals with this. So we'll certainly go in-depth there. Also, there's a great book that we'll put in the sink this week, probably the best treatment on this doctrine by J. Gresham Machen called The Virgin Birth. It's a free ebook, so if you want to dig deep, you can do that. But it's in our text. We have to talk about it. And so let's just draw out two things. Here's two reasons why we hold this doctrine uh, so closely and why it's so important for us. And the first is very simple. The scriptures prophesy that this will take place. God said this was going to happen. 700 years before this angel appears to Mary, Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. So as we believe God's word in its entirety, we see that this isn't just some added doctrine to sort of spice up the narrative a little bit. This was God's plan through which he would bring the Savior into the world. The scriptures testify to it. Now the second reason is a theological reason. The reason we hold this doctrine so tightly is because without it, we have no salvation. We don't have a Jesus who saves Scripture teaches that the incarnate Jesus is fully God and fully man. Not 50% God and 50% man. Not divine, but he sort of looks human with this shell. But fully divine, fully human. 1 Timothy 2.5 shows us the humanity of Jesus. Paul says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. As a human who grew in the womb like us, who grew up like us, who lived like us, he was able to identify and live for us and therefore represent us to God. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. When was the last time someone was miraculously created and born that's not humanly possible? Yeah, Adam, Genesis 1 and 2. And so God is now recreating a second Adam, the last Adam, to be a representative for us and do what Adam failed to do and what you and I failed to do, which is obey God's law. And how is he going to do this? Well, because he's not just a man. He's not just fully man. He's also fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So yes, he was one of us, but as one who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, while he shares our humanity, he doesn't share our sin nature. He's divine, therefore he never sinned, though he was tempted. And he succeeded where Adam and all of us have failed. He lived the righteous life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die, but he died in our place and rose from the dead, purchasing salvation for all who believe. And so if Jesus were merely a man, he wouldn't be able to be our spotless sacrifice. He would be a sinner, just like us. There would be no payment of sin. If he were merely divine, he wouldn't be able to identify with us and therefore represent us and share in our humanity to God. So God uses his astonishing creative power, just as he did in Genesis 1 and 2, again, to bring forth the God-man, our Savior, into the world. And without it, we'd have no salvation. J.I. Packer, just reflecting on the glory of this, says, God became a man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. 
needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. It's essential to our faith. And if that sounds difficult to swallow, I believe Mary, even after fully submitting to God, wrestled with this as well. That's that's why Elizabeth confirms the miracle and comforts Mary in verses 39 through 45. After the angel departs Mary, she visits her family, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and she does it in haste. Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Luke includes this. He's showing us Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who is going to prepare the way for Jesus in his ministry. And I love this. It's like Luke is saying, hey, John's getting started early on his job, like really early, like in utero early. And so when Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, comes and Elizabeth is pregnant with John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb uh, leaps for joy. Then Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she acts as a prophetess confirming who this baby is in Mary's womb, confirming that it's the Lord. She knows that Mary has been graciously chosen by God to bear the Messiah, the Deliverer. Look at verse 42. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So the Holy Spirit shows Elizabeth that this baby in Mary's womb is the Lord. She calls him the Lord. What a comfort this must have been. For, for Mary. Why do you think she went in haste to Elizabeth? She was likely still anxious about what was happening, concerned about the future. She hadn't told Joseph yet. Nobody knew. She knew life as she knew it was over. But when she arrived, what does God do? God confirms to Mary that she's richly blessed and that his word is coming true. There's no way Elizabeth would have known this apart from the Spirit supernaturally revealing this to her. So Mary's faith is strengthened and her miracle is confirmed. God is so gracious to do this, isn't he? Mary isn't left to deal with this task on her own. God reminds her. He's with her. Elizabeth tells her twice that she's blessed. See, as we, as we live the Christian life, there will be moments, many of them, where we think, God, I know you're there. I know you're worthy, but this is, this is really hard. I don't know that I can do this. And God hears that. He knows, and he kindly and graciously gives us these providential moments, usually through others, where we're reminded of his goodness and grace. Don't miss that here. I love how this happens. Please don't miss this. This happens in the context of community for Mary. She goes in haste. To Elizabeth. We're tempted when we're wrestling with our faith to just turn inward in moments of weakness and doubt. Mary shows us, don't, don't do that. You and I need Elizabeths, don't we? We need those who will preach the gospel to us and remind us, God is with you. You are blessed. Right? That's often how the Holy Spirit encourages us. I needed this this week. I was discouraged about something, was struggling, and I thought, oh man, I'm just going to 
keep it inside, you know, sort of pridefully, don't want to let anyone know I'm struggling. But then I, I needed encouragement, so I, I told my wife, and she was an Elizabeth to me in that moment. She encouraged me. She preached the gospel to me. She reminded me of who God is and that whatever the cost, whatever is going on, God is worth it. And it worked out really well because her middle name is Elizabeth, so <laughs> fit the sermon perfectly. But friends, we, we need that. So Mary, is her, her miracle is confirmed, and she's comforted by Elizabeth in this prophecy. The baby is called the Lord. And how do we know that Mary is, is comforted by this? Well, look at her response, and this leads us to our third observation about Mary's joy. So we've seen Mary's faith, we've seen Mary's miracle, and now we see Mary's joy. Verse 46 through 55, she responds with a song. This is no small thing. I don't, I don't think this was a spontaneous song. She immediately started singing. I imagine Mary is taking the journey back to Nazareth after visiting Elizabeth. And as she is, she's thinking about all that God has done and her anxiety and her doubt and her struggles. And she thinks about what's going to happen. Sort of gives way to joy and peace. And she begins composing this hymn of praise. Traditionally, it's called the Magnificat, which is Latin for joy or for magnify. And singing here to her is this overflow of gratitude in her heart at the thought of God's goodness to her. She can't help but sing. And that's what singing is for us, whether it's in joy or whether it's in sorrow. It's this sort of universal expression of the heart. And so we can break down Mary's joyous song here into two major sections. First, her joyful response to God's grace in her life. Look at verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. In this, we see Mary recognizing that God has been extremely gracious to her. And note her humility in verse 48. She considers herself an undeserving servant. This is so important for us. Mary is, is not to be elevated above us. She, was, she saw herself to be a sinner just like we are. But she knew she was an undeserving recipient of God's grace. She didn't think herself worthy of the blessing of the Lord. Yet she recognizes God has chosen to use me for his purposes. I'm going to praise him for it. She praises him for his great works. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. See, Mary's showing us here that we should never, ever cease to be amazed at God's grace in our lives. If you were to ask Mary, hey Mary, why did God choose you to be the mother of the Savior? What do you think she would say? She'd say, well, I was a pretty good Jewish girl. I studied the Torah. I knew it well. I was a little better than all the rest. It was a, it was a natural fit. No, that's not, that's not what she says here. She'd say, man, I have no idea. I have no idea why God chose me. I'm an undeserving sinner, just like everybody else. My only explanation for the reason God has chosen me is that he is a good and gracious God. He chooses to use the humble. He draws them in. He's done great things for me. Likewise, for us, if you're here and you're a professing Christian, I pray that when someone asks you, why are you a Christian? 
Why do you follow Jesus? The answer is not, well, I thought I'd add a little religion and morality to my life. I was doing pretty good already, so it seemed kind of like a natural fit. I'm already a pretty awesome dude, so why not just become a Christian? If that's our reason, then I'd submit that we don't really understand the grace of the gospel. We don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. Mary would say, listen, the reason I willingly put my reputation and my livelihood and even my life on the line is because the God of the universe has graciously chosen a sinner like me for his purposes. I contribute nothing. He does everything. We don't add a little Jesus to our lives. It's all or nothing. And the joy of this full submission is for us as well. And that's what leads to the second part of Mary's song. She doesn't just rejoice for God's grace in her, but she also rejoices for God's grace for all peoples. Verses 50 through 55, she expands this. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This isn't just for Mary. This isn't just for the Jewish people. This is for all who fear the Lord. And fear here simply means to worship God in faith. To reverence Him in belief. And notice how Mary really emphasizes how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He's scattered the proud, verse 51. He brings down the mighty but He exalts those of humble estate, verse 52. He's filled the hungry with good things, but he sends away the rich hungry, verse 53. Mary's showing us, our our world tells us that true joy comes from exalting yourself, right, and getting whatever you can. And Mary is teaching us that the pathway to true joy is the humble recognition that you and I bring absolutely nothing to the table. All we bring is our need of him. But God then fills us up with overflowing joy to the brim. This is why God chose a humble servant like Mary. This is why the newborn Christ was laid in a feeding trough in a crowded town that nobody knew about. This is why the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Why? Because true joy is not found in self-exaltation. It's found in exalting God above all, and all other earthly pleasures pale in comparison to the joy of knowing God. That's why Mary is moved not just to reflect, but to actually sing for joy. Now here, Mary has... She comes to the close of this song. She also shows herself to be a weighty Old Testament theologian. It's easy to sort of gloss over this and say, oh, she wrote a poem and sang. But she, she's well-versed in the scriptures. There are at least 10 Old Testament references in this hymn, especially the second half is rich with them. And Mary, is what she's doing is she's tying all that's happening back to God's promise to Abraham. That's why he closes, she closes in verse 55 saying, As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. She's saying, listen, all of this was a part of God's plan, and I get to be a part of it. Now, who is Abraham's offspring? Now, we would technically answer, well, it's, it's the Jewish people, and that's absolutely true. But the New Testament shows us very clearly that the Jewish people were the nation God chose through which to bless the world. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3.29. He says, And if you are Christ's, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So who is this joy for? For Mary? Yes, absolutely. For the Jewish people? Sure. But ultimately, this joy, this song is for all who believe in Christ. This song is for us. So what what does all of this mean for us? How can we sort of apply this to our lives? Well, while Mary's role in history is unique, her, her experience is unique. She brought forth the Savior of the world. I'd submit to you that uh, her experience of faith is not. In fact, her faith, her miracle, and her joy are meant to be a pattern for us today as we seek to follow Jesus. So let's walk back through these things and consider what it's calling us to do with our own lives. Mary's faith is a call for us to trust in Him. Trust in Him this morning. He can handle your intellectual reasoning. He is patient in the process as you wrestle with doubts. He even comforts and confirms our faith in times of need. But He ultimately demands full submission. Let go of whatever securities in this life are keeping you from Him and cling to Him. Fear no more. He's good. He's worthy. Mary's miracle is a call for us to experience the miracle of new birth. While Mary's miracle was completely unique, there is actually a radical miracle for all who believe the gospel today. You are born again. That's the language Jesus uses. So if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, you say, okay, what does that that mean? Know that when you trust in Christ, Jesus doesn't just add himself to your life. He doesn't just come into your life. He completely transforms you as Christ was miraculously conceived and born. We who believe are miraculously reborn, raised to walk in the newness of life, promised an eternity in his presence. I love the the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. One verse says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in Be born in us today. That's what Mary's miracle shows us. And then lastly, Mary's joy is a call for you to find your joy in him. Even when her reputation, her livelihood, and life were up for grabs, she found God to be her greatest joy. Whatever else you look to for joy will ultimately fail. But if you come to Christ with the empty hands of faith... He will fill you up. So we reflect on the depth of God's grace and love for us, and we respond in joyous praise. This is why Christ came, to bring us good news of great joy.